0: From Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News, welcome to Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Emphasis this week on education politics, because really, here in the first week of August, it felt like the unofficial launch of the campaign for state superintendent. We had uh, the Republican incumbent, Sherry Ibarra, the Democratic challenger, Cindy Wilson, on the same stage, at the same time, fielding the same set of questions, we were both there. You led our
1: coverage. But let's talk about what we heard and what kind of jumped out. Yeah, kind of a hot ticket if you were at the school administrators conference this week. The first time to see those two on the same stage. And boy, Kevin, they came out swinging. They came mm-hmm. out on yeah. the offensive early on right from their opening remarks. Uh, let's let's start with Superintendent Ibarra first. I believe she went first she did. Mm-hmm. on Thursday. Uh, she said the reason she is running... And I I haven't, just a little bit of context here, I maybe have not seen um, Superintendent Ybarra this aggressive or this assertive before. She came out and said the reason she was running was because... Before she was in office, when she was a teacher and principal in Mountain Home, she was kind of disgusted with how the State Department of Education was being run. Uh, she said it devolved into this bureaucracy. It was kind of a toxic culture. And she talked about uh, this blame-em, name em, shame em accountability plan that we had uh, before she took office. And she said, I warned everybody, there's going to be a new sheriff in town. I'm going to run. And um, Without naming names, she was obviously directing that at her predecessor, Tom Luna. But I imagine the superintendent scored some points there right out of the Uh, gate.
0: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, first of all, I don't think I've ever heard uh, Superintendent Ibarra that overtly critical of Tom Luna and and that overtly critical of the Luna years. Uh, A lot of what she has tried to do the past four years in terms of trying to build bridges with uh, local districts, Uh, emphasizing local control and and support as opposed to compliance. You know, that all kind of ties into her uh, broader uh, concern with the the way the State Department of Education had evolved under Tom Luna. But that was the first time I've heard her really aggressively and publicly criticize the Luna years. I mean, here we are in 2018, and it sounds like she's running against Tom Luna. But with that audience... Uh, given the way the the Luna years went down and the, the hard feelings that kind of evolved over time, yeah, I think she scored some points uh, with uh, administrators on that because she then kind of pivoted it to say, this is what we've done the past four years. This is how we've tried to emphasize it. So she went from, you know, the punch to kind of the, Here's how we've done. Here's what we've tried to do. Here's how things have changed over the past four years. I I thought, you know, on balance, pretty effective opening statement from her. Yeah,
1: she made the point, I've walked in your shoes. I know what it's like uh, to be that school administrator. I know what it's like to be a teacher. I know what you're going through. She was not the only one that came out uh, hard at the beginning, and she's not the only one that's had a lot of education experience. Cindy Wilson came out strong in her opening remarks And kind of took it directly to Mm -hmm. Superintendent Ibarra. Um, She was developing this theme, I'm going all in on education. And then she pivoted, and I think her word choice is important here. I will be the one that shows up. I will show up. I will show up for the students. Uh, I will be the one who shows up. Without naming names, that was a jab, certainly at Ibarra, especially when you think back to that interview that... um, outgoing House Education Chair Julie Van Orden gave at the end of the 2018 legislative session using the words, Superintendent Ibarra needs to show up more mm-hmm. at the State House uh, to work together to advance her agenda and get her policy in place. Uh, that was not so subtle as to have gone over everybody's head, right? Uh, oh, no, 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 no. I think that I mean, was a, a calculated choice of words. In
0: the same way that Sherry Ibarra criticized Tom Luna without naming Tom Luna, uh, Cindy Wilson criticized Sherry Ibarra without naming Sherry Ibarra. Um, And and yeah, I was kind of wondering what what kind of demeanor, what kind of tone, what sort of, uh, what would the mood be when you had the two candidates on the same stage? Because this is the first time we've had them in a joint appearance. So yes, I mean, Cindy Wilson, this is a point that she's made already in this campaign. She's put out a press release calling uh, Sherry Ibarra a no-show superintendent. so without you know without completely taking the gloves off and and, and calling Ibarra out as a no show superintendent she got uh, her point across she she tried to you know you know she tried to label Ibarra as a no show superintendent without using the words so i thought in, in in the same way that i thought Ibarra came out effectively i thought Wilson came out effectively as well very emotional as well talked mm-hmm. a lot about her experience as a teacher teared up talking about to our See, students. Seeing a couple of her former students yep. in attendance. Uh, I, I think she tried to, to play up her passion for education, her background in, in education. Really both candidates were trying to say, look, we're one of you. Yeah. We've been there. We've done this. We're on your side. Uh, so I thought both candidates did pretty well uh, trying to kind of humanize themselves and trying to create common ground with uh, the folks in
1: attendance. So a really good opening. Yeah, and Yubara made the point, and I had to look it up because she gave sort of this quote that's almost a idiom or a cliche at this point. She said, we don't want to change horses midstream. And she said, that's what my favorite leader used to say. And I, it didn't really come to mind, but I Googled it, and I think she was quoting Abraham Lincoln there. But uh, Yubara was making a push – uh, for more of the same that I've started, we've got four years of work done. She mentioned the education budgets. She mentioned the career ladder. Uh, she said, "Let's not change horses midstream here. Uh, let's stick with some consistency." And so that was Ybarra's message to voters. But uh, after after the introductory remarks, things settled down a little bit. We focused more on policy. There were really three key er- three, uh, easy for me to say. There were really three key areas that were explored. And the candidates actually staked out a lot of common ground. And I guess Mm -hmm. school funding was the big topic uh, that sort of every question touched on in one way or another, and it's really the backdrop of what's happening right now. There's a transition to a new school funding formula that's going on. We've covered that. We've talked about that on the podcast. But certainly teacher pay, the career ladder, master educator premiums, and the transition to the new funding formula were really the biggest topics that... We got to in a short 40 or so minute uh, forum, right? Right. I mean, you only had four questions
0: when you came right down to it. Three from Rob Winslow, the the head of the uh, Administrators Association, and one question from the audience. So not a lot of time to get into a lot of topics. Some common ground really kind of struck me uh, as I listened to the responses. Big area of agreement between both candidates is on the career ladder, on continuing to fund that career ladder. And that's not just an academic point because that's a big deal. It's not a slam dunk either. The consultants are sort of pushing the other way. Because when you do the school funding formula and redo the school funding formula, a big question legislators are going to have to wrestle with is, well, what do we do with the line item that goes into teacher salaries? The, the money that's going into the career ladder, not just the raises in the career right. ladder, but the overall funding for teacher pay. Do you leave that as its own line item or do you put it all into the mix and, and let uh, districts and charter schools spend it as as they see fit? Both Ibarra and Wilson adamant about keeping the career ladder in place, keeping that line item in place, keeping that $760 million, as the consultants estimate it keeping that money for, career, for teacher salaries in a pot of money for teacher salaries. Uh, Cindy Wilson uh, talked about her time on the K-12 task force back in 2013, the, the work that led up to the creation of the career ladder. And she said, we we fought for this. We're not completely funding it the way we envisioned. We need to do more uh, for high-end salaries. But we fought for this career ladder. We need to keep it in place. And Ibarra saying we need to keep it in place as well. So that was... A big area of agreement. Uh, both candidates talked about uh, the teacher shortage in general. Um, Ibarra used the word crisis on yeah. numerous occasions to say, look, we're losing teachers. We've got too many teachers having to go through the alternative certification route. 900 uh, teachers statewide going through alternative certification. When you have that happening, you've got a crisis. Wilson saying, look, we've got too many teachers leaving the state. Uh Making more money elsewhere, we we got to do something about that. So, so an area of of agreement there. Yeah, you know, I, I think we saw a lot of a lot of common ground. We did see some topics that, you know. We, let me put it another way: there were topics that weren't addressed today that I think you would see more of a, a difference between these two candidates. We did
1: not get to pre-K and early childhood no discussion education. pre-K, at all.
0: where, uh, where Wilson has been very strong about a, a state role in pre-K. Ibarra has been more um she's been an advocate for using uh, the smartphone application smarty ants, smarty yeah. ants which she did mention uh, as sort of a, a no-cost alternative to a pre-k program it's so a no real discussion of pre-k nothing really about charter schools where i suspect the two candidates might have some disagreement not a there was discussion about ibarra's uh, school safety initiative the the kiss initiative that she rolled out at the end of the legislative session that She wants to pursue if reelected, but not a lot of discussion about, you know, the armed teachers, uh, any of those kind of topics. So look, 40 minutes with the two candidates, I'll take it. It's a good chance to get a sense of where these two candidates stand. Uh, I think it sets the stage. Hopefully we'll see these candidates on the same stage uh, numerous times between now and November because uh, I thought it was an interesting exchange. It left me wanting
1: more. It did leave me wanting more. Uh, And there was so much that we didn't cover, and we didn't wade into uh, really uh, some of these difficult problems uh, for the state. We did not uh, weigh into the state's uh, college go-on or college completion rates. That's Mm -hmm. been a tricky, tough subject uh, for a decade now. Uh, Did not get into that. Did not get into higher ed much. Did not get into early childhood uh, much. Did not get into specifics about math and reading achievements. So there's a lot of ground still to cover, still that I would like to hear from these candidates. But I, I imagine both candidates feel fairly good about how they did on Thursday. And I imagine uh, if you were a supporter of Superintendent Ibarra going into this, you probably thought she did really well and would like to see four more years out of her. On the other hand, if you were looking for a change or if you liked Cindy Wilson going in, uh, you may have thought, okay, she came out and she's starting to make this a race, and she has something to say and something to offer, uh, and this will be a real race. And so I feel both candidates have to feel pretty good. Mm-hmm. I didn't see any moments where anybody scored, uh, to use a boxing analogy, a, a knockout. I don't see where anybody really won the debate. I also don't see any glaring mistakes where anybody lost it Um you know, So I, I think both candidates have to feel pretty well about right. how they did at this point. And I think in August, three
0: months out sure. from the election, uh, if you're working on one of these campaigns, you're probably you know dreading that sort of moment that goes viral where one of the candidates says or does something that that really will stick to them for three months. It's really going to be something for them to have to, to deal with for three months. Didn't Neither. happen this week. Both candidates uh, did a good job. Fielding questions, uh, showing some passion for what they want to try to do uh, with the job. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think both candidates and both campaigns come away feeling like this was good, Uh, good exposure and uh, good performance. But like I say, you know, in theory, this should be a pretty close race. This could be the closest race uh, on the on the ballot statewide. So I would hope we see more of these candidates uh, on the same stage and. Obviously, we have a vested interest. We've uh, sure. we're organizing a forum ourselves in early October. We're hoping both candidates will will attend, but not just our forum. We hope I hope to see these candidates do this around the state. I mean, it would be great if both candidates, uh, you know, took this took this on the road and, mm-hmm. and did some joint appearances around the state. You know, in addition to what we're trying to do, in addition to what public TV will certainly do uh, with a statewide debate. In the fall, it's an important race, and it's a competitive race. And voters uh, voters should have the opportunity to hear from both campaigns, and yeah. both candidates.
1: And if you missed it this morning, or if you missed it on Thursday, it started about nine thirty a.m. If you didn't have a ticket, if you weren't able to get there, uh, you can head over. We have full coverage at the homepage, IdahoEdNews.org. And at the very bottom of my story, I have links to two Facebook videos. Um, where we have coverage from the – we streamed coverage from the debate. We broke it up into two parts, a little bit of a technology hiccup there. But if you look at the story, then scroll down to the bottom. There's links to two Facebook videos which just have the raw uh, coverage uh, from the forum itself. Uh, So if you want to go back and and listen to it and hear the candidates in your own words, uh, I would recommend that. I would recommend folks seeking that out. Uh, and spending a little bit of time getting to know which issues are are out there right now in the race and where the candidates staked out their initial priorities. So head over to IdahoEdNews.org, check out the story, or uh, as always, uh, like Idaho Ed News on Facebook, and you can find the videos embedded there yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Kevin, you are taking a look at advanced opportunities, which has been an area of emphasis for the legislature the last several years. Uh, kind of looking at where the program is now, and some of the money that's being spent, uh, what were you looking at and what did you find out? The State
0: Department of Education dropped some data on Thursday on the Advanced Opportunities Program. And the numbers are surprising. I mean, I, I kind of geek out on numbers, but these are really interesting mm-hmm. numbers, even if you don't geek out on, on data. Uh, students took advantage of this program to the tune of $16 million in 2017-2018, in That's up about $3 million from the previous year. It's well ahead, well above what legislators earmarked for this program. Advanced Opportunities is growing by leaps and bounds. There's no getting around it. You've got students uh, taking thousands upon thousands of college-level credits while in high school, uh, taking advanced placement tests, international baccalaureate tests. The, The growth of this program, and we've Talked about this before. We've written about it before. is really meteoric, and you know, and it's really important in the sense of what the state is trying to do with the sixty percent goal, trying to get more uh, more high school students to continue their education to get a college degree or get a college certificate. This Advanced Opportunities Program is a big component towards that campaign. It's a it's a linchpin towards trying to get to that sixty percent goal. So when you see more and more students taking advantage of this program, taking advantage of the opportunity to take some college-level classes at, you know, at state expense. The growth of the program, I'm sure, is very encouraging to a lot of education leaders. You know, we talked about the the um, Ibarra-Wilson Forum on yeah. Thursday. Both candidates uh, took turns praising the Advanced Opportunities Program. You know, I I think that there's a lot of momentum towards trying to continue this program, even though the legislature is going to have to find some new money to continue to cover the costs. I don't anticipate there will be much objection to that. I think legislators are are pretty much uh, all in in terms of trying to continue this program. Something I found interesting, though, when I looked at those numbers, uh, with with all of this growth, with all of these um, additional students taking advantage of the program, you still see some of those demographic gaps that have to be troubling to education leaders. If you're trying to get to a 60% goal, if you're trying to get more kids to continue their education and continue from high school to college, you're not going to get from 42% uh, completion rate that we've got now to 60% without getting a whole new bunch of students into the system, without getting a whole new cohort of kids to enroll in college and continue their education in in some manner or another. So something that jumped out at me when I looked at these numbers, uh, Latino students, Native American students, not enrolling in advanced opportunities programs to the extent that, in proportion to their population, uh, the numbers are low. The same thing goes for students who qualify for reduced-price lunch or free lunch. They are not enrolling in these programs to the extent that uh, in proportion to to their their student population, you're seeing about fifty eight percent of the money, fifty eight percent of the participation going to female students. And I'm not you know, I'm not being sexist here. you know, female students go for it. go go enroll, you know. But as a state, and as a nation uh, you've got an enrollment gap in college between female students and male students it's just, you know female students are more likely to continue their education and go on to college uh, male students are a little bit more likely to go into the workforce yep. after high school that's that's the reality and if you're trying to get more students more uh, you know a larger cohort of students into the uh, into the college pipeline you've got to try to get some Some students into the system that aren't going now. So while the the growth is considerable and and there's a success story there in terms of student participation, what kind of participation and, and how broad the participation is among that student population. That's still a question that needs to be uh, looked at more closely.
1: That's a key question, and that's something that we talked about when we were walking back to the office this morning, isn't it, Kevin? Uh, And just to recap the point you made a little bit, what we have is a popular, growing program uh, that is meeting a lot of the objectives that the legislators set out for it, Uh, but that key question, that key next step uh, is how do you reach the students that weren't going on before you know, is this a program that's obviously benefiting a lot of people? But were a lot of those people going to be going on to college anyways? Mm-hmm. How do you expand it to reach those those children, those students, those young adults uh, that would not have otherwise gone on? And that's I, the riddle yeah, right I, now. I
0: think that hits the nail on the head. And I've spent the past two falls yeah. writing about this project and, and writing about the sixty percent goal. And it feels like the question I'm always asking educators, policymakers is Okay, are these programs helping students that are already pretty much hardwired to continue their education? Yeah. They're pretty much college bound anyway, and there's nothing wrong with helping, uh, trying to figure out ways to help students make uh, make the transition to college, no, make college no, no. more affordable. No, no, nobody's arguing that that's a bad thing, but if you're trying to get from forty-two percent completion to sixty percent completion, you're not going to get there. If you don't get a whole new group of students in. So the question of getting more students into that pipeline, getting more students to consider a certificate after high school or a degree after high school, you, you gotta get new kids into the system. There, there's no no two ways around that. So that's the ongoing question. And you know and,
1: and I'm left with more questions as I look at these numbers. Good stuff. It's a good report. Head on over to Idahoednews.org to check that report out. I mean the thing I might appreciate most about it is is you love tackling those numbers, so I don't have to, Uh, but there are some good numbers in there, and this new data drop and the way you've taken a look at it really allows you to kind of take stock of the program and see where it is now, uh, who's participating in it, how much is it costing us, uh, but also some key gaps like you've talked about. So it's a fascinating read,
0: and, and, good and, stuff. And it dovetails quickly into a project I'll be working on this fall, looking at the 60% goal, but also really trying to dig into the demographics. What is it going to take to get more uh, Latino students, Native American students, uh, rural students, uh, students from, from poverty? How do you get more of those, more students from those demographic groups to continue their education? So, these numbers really, uh, really resonated with me because of that project.
1: All right, sounds good. Uh, busy week so far uh, in education. Was there anything else you wanted to uh, cover this week oh, or look ahead
0: sure. to? Sure, real, really quickly. Now, there's no truth to the rumor that I'm going on vacation next week just to get away from studies about <laughs> teacher salaries, but it seems like uh, every few days we get a new one. This one came from the Idaho Center for Fiscal right. Policy, uh, a group, a nonpartisan group uh, based in Boise, and what they looked at. Really quickly, they looked at the teacher salary issue and what they found, uh, they found Idaho salaries ranked 43rd in the nation. They found that when you look at cost of living and and you factor in cost of living, uh, Idaho teachers have lost about 7% in earning power since 2000. Nationally, that drop is about 2%. So so teachers are falling behind in terms of what their paycheck will, will pay for. And they're
1: saying cost of living doesn't explain everything away, that there's other states that are cheaper anyways. And right. And so you can't and just fall back of, on that and argument. I and mean,
0: that was an interesting point. You know, we, we hear that a lot, that, well, Idaho's you know, wages are lower, but Idaho's cost of living is lower. The center said, well, wait a minute. They're they sort of said, 20, yeah, but. <laughs> there are 20 states that have a lower cost of living than Idaho. So I found that to be an interesting takeaway. And, you know, these studies are always, there's always a little bit of a lag time. In these studies, sure. I wonder what the cost of living in Idaho would look like if you did it in real time in 2018 when you look at what's going on in Boise with the growth, with the, the skyrocketing housing Imagine costs. Valley, too. Western right. Idaho mean, pockets. In, 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 there, are, there are a lot of areas of growth in the state, that, uh, and growth has a cost attached to it. And the other takeaway from the Center study, and really probably the reason they did the study in the first place, they looked at Idaho's salaries compared to states around the country where we've seen teacher strikes over over salary issues idaho salaries are are not uh are comparable to some of these states actually lower than uh kentucky which is one state where you've had teacher teacher strikes kentucky's uh teacher salary about five thousand dollars higher on average than idaho so interesting stuff uh you can see the study and see the reactions to the study at idahoednews.org.
1: If a little bit of this sounds repetitive, it's no wonder uh, that teacher pay and school funding were top, top priorities uh, during the superintendent candidate's debate on Thursday. No mystery um, no, why that's no, a no. big issue. And, and it all ties together because, yeah. you know, yeah, the, the
0: teacher salary issue, it, it, it has a lot to do with, you know, and I wrote about this again this week, uh, it has to do with how do students decide what they want to do with their lives? Uh, you know, another study, you can find this on my blog this week, looking at student preferences and students you know, steering away from a career in education or majoring in education because of concerns about salaries. Yeah. And we heard that uh,
1: brought up at the Candidate right, Forum yes. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a busy week. I encourage you to head over to IdahoEdNews.org. Check out all of our coverage of the candidates Forum, uh, the Salary Study, the Advanced Opportunities Study, good stuff uh, this week. Next week, as you alluded to, you're going to be on vacation. We will be back with another new episode of Extra Credit next week. I just have seven days to find a special guest host, Uh, but we'll get something worked out and we'll have fun next week in your absence. So so
0: stay tuned. Well, somebody will be here.
1: (laughs) Somebody will be here. I will be here. Uh, You'll be on vacation. But as always, thank you so much for checking us out. Uh, We always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast and we always enjoy kind of breaking down this complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. So thanks for coming along uh, for the ride and bearing with us, we always have a lot of fun. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. I will have a good week next week. (laughs) I hope you do too. All right, sounds good, thanks so much.